Good morning, and I, I trust you're a wide and wake. As we were in our staff prayer meeting before we came out, I learned for the first time that there's a nurse in Portland that at a unknown coffee shop orders her coffee with 10 shots of caffeine. And I think, I think Jeff probably said it best. He says, why drink it? Just go directly into the vein on something like that. So I hope you're awake without your 10 shots of coffee. Uh, good morning. My name is John Moore. I am one of the substitutes that comes in when Steve and Debbie get away. And I'm happy to report to you that as of about an hour ago, the report was, in part, Debbie and I are enjoying our last couple of days away walking on the beach, exploring tide pools, and sipping good coffee. <laughs> and you know for Steve, the coffee's a big deal. Today's also, um, as I'm coming in and substituting today, uh, if you're new here, you need to know that my day job is as an attorney, and I've been doing that for 30 years. And my night job is taking care of the best dog in the world, um, and uh, that takes care of my evenings. But when I come in, uh, I come in with the uh, privilege of building on the ministries that are going here. I, I hadn't planned on telling you this, but I've been reading some material by a retired pastor out of Detroit who built churches and, and, and uh, started churches and they often got to the mega size of 5,000 plus. And his comment in a recent blog online was, you know, I'm not impressed. Because to me, the greatest work, I mean, the big churches, it's kind of the happening and, you know, you get whatever you get. But he said, the, the, hap the, the big things going on in Christian ministry are taking those 5,000 people and reducing them down to about 10 or 15 churches of three to 400 each. And having now been involved in both vocational Christian ministry and non and started churches I agree and so it's a great privilege today to be here in front of you and to continue the ministry that's been started for many years by the McCracken clan today's also an important day because it's national ice cream day and I can guarantee you that if Steve were in this pulpit today He'd be reminding you of that. He's a great fan of ice cream. Uh, so everybody has their favorite flavor. And now I want you to tell me on the count of three, what's your favorite flavor? One, two, three. Wow, I heard cookie dough. That's the wrong answer, but I did hear it. I go to Baskin Robbins and I say to the poor beleaguered staff there, you know, you're involved in false advertising, and they say, what do you mean? I say, you advertise 31 flavors, but you really just have one. And they blink, and then I show them the flavor, and they say, yeah, I guess that's right. So everybody has their favorite flavor here on Ice Cream Day, and uh, we certainly are enjoying our time to be able to get a time to get together. Today, our emphasis is out of the Sermon on the Mount, I took four years to go through five chapters in the book of James. Matthew has 28 chapters. This is my third message on Matthew, and we've made it from verse 5 through verse 20. So what that means is that you and I ultimately someday are going to be in heaven, 
and Matthew's going to finish the exposition of, of Matthew. I don't think we're going to get through it, although we'll pick up speed next week. I want to ask you, because I like to harass you, do you have your Bibles? Let's see them. Hold them up. All right. You can hang up your, your, your phone or some iPad if you want. I want to encourage you, by way of harassment, to get a good study Bible. I use the New International Version study Bible. And even after more seminary education than I had a right to be involved in by way of intelligence, these notes are really helpful to me. But the Ryrie study Bible is great. I don't think I've told anybody this before, but I was a teaching assistant for Charles Ryrie while I cleaned his swimming pool. I had a swimming pool business while I was in seminary, and then I was a teaching assistant for him. And he has... He has a Ryrie Study Bible that has 10,000 notes in it, and it sold 2 million copies. So you don't have to go to seminary, but you do have to get some good study tools. And a good start for that is to go get a good study Bible. Okay, you've been harassed. Today our subject is happiness and success. Two, two times ago we had the, the fun video that says... Uh, you know, happiness is whatever it's defined to be in the lives of a lot of people. But for us, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount begin with the word blessed. And we haven't said it before, but blessings in the Bible are two-directional. They are saying this is God's pleasure to us. And secondly, this is our opportunity to have joy and happiness with those around us. And so the Beatitudes have started off, and I've suggested to you that the overlay for them is going to go all through the book of Matthew. For example, just this morning I was in Matthew 26, uh, earlier this morning, and uh, Jesus predicted his death in two days. And immediately the religious leaders started to plot how to get him into and trap him into a false trial and and condemn him to death. And, and the disciples went to the house of Simon the leper. I didn't even plan on, you know, sometimes my students have said in the past that the rabbit trails are better than the main stuff. So we'll, we'll see. Anyway, this is a rabbit trail. Um, Jesus and the disciples went to Simon the leper. And there, a woman who we know from John 12 was Mary, Mary and Martha. Mary came and took this treasure we're never going to get through this today, John, if you do this. Um, went through and she took an alabaster jar of valuable perfume and she poured it on Jesus' head in Simon's home. And, you know, we're going to learn one thing, two things in the book of Matthew. One, the men are kind of have it half together, but they don't really have it totally together, the disciples. And that actually reminds me of what I said in... In the Bible college 30 years ago, I would say to the men, um, particularly my graduate students, guys, you don't even have a full deck until you're 25. And they kind of blink. And I'd say, you know, our country doesn't raise men to grow up. It raises women to grow up, but not men. I think after 30 years, I should change that number from 25. But whatever, whatever, the disciples were confused and they said, what are you doing? We could take that perfume and we could sell it and, and help the poor. And Jesus said, back off. Mary has done what is right. And what she's done will be remembered 
throughout the whole world. And the point of that is that our disciples come into their commitment to Jesus, who was making them fishers of men, with mixed expectations. And we'll do that all through the book of Matthew. Uh, they, Jesus was Lord. Peter was clear on that. He was this Messiah. John the Baptist had introduced him. But they said, we need to get our nation back. We need to get our power back. And they never quite recovered from wanting Jesus to come in and bring an army of angels and create a new Israel in their day. And that didn't happen. But you know, uh, the message for the day is how do we live rightly in a culture, a world, a church that's gone sideways? And we certainly all know that. USA Today, a few weeks ago, named a four-star admiral named Rachel Man of the Year. Last week, the University of Pennsylvania named a swimmer athlete in their school named Leah, female athlete, uh, a man named Leah, female athlete of the year. A Canadian couple recently had a gender reveal party for their eight-year-old daughter who they announced in the party had decided that she was a he. Uh, it's all around us, and uh, you find yourself deciphering truth from error in a whole range of ways. I said to you that in a trial I was in about a month ago, in looking for the men's restroom, I saw this sign, unnamed county respects the right of individuals to use a restroom in accordance with their gender identity. Okay. It doesn't end there, it gets better. <laughs> Last week I was in trial, and as I'm getting ready to go in front of the judge, I see a sign that says, please feel free to inform the court of your pronouns. <laughs> now, you know, there's some well-intentioned people that are behind some of this, but I thought, you know, if, if we need to tell the court our pronouns, do we need to also tell them our nicknames? Does the court want to know that? Or maybe they want to know our educational background. And for one who's educated beyond his intelligence with two doctoral degrees, I thought about telling the judge, would you just call me Dr. Dr. Moore? <laughs> but I, I didn't think that the judge would think that was very funny. Last week, a trans and I told you I've had transgender clients, so that's different from this. But last year, a transgender inmate assigned as a woman to the all-women's prison was finally transferred out after he impregnated two other female inmates. It's a world gone a little crazy. But you know, all those illustrations, even well-intentioned, and I think we need to be compassionate and kind toward people who are struggling through these kind of questions. But even with all of that, those kind of things can be swatted away like a fly that's buzzing around you. It's just silliness. It's just lacking common sense but it gets more serious because in this culture and in this twist 
of chasing things that end up being hollow, what we think as having arrived really doesn't necessarily arrive in the vernacular that we think. For example, power, position, money, you would think, would be the things that would create happiness, and that's what we're talking about. But in May, last two months ago, on law.com, a survey was done of people in my profession, attorneys. And the normal that's being returned to us post-COVID in our careers is current statistics, 35% of attorneys struggle with depression, 67% of attorneys struggle with anxiety, 44% of attorneys struggle with substance abuse other, within the industry at a crisis level. Those are serious kind of statistics. What it says is the veil behind the face is different than what you see. And 19% of attorneys have considered suicide. So regardless of your station in life, we need help and perspective. And the good news for today is our passage is going to give us a blueprint for joy and happiness in the circumstances that we find ourselves. So if you've got your Bibles or your phone or whatever you've got, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, and it should be on the screen, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus, in teaching to his disciples, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Notice, by the way, that that stands separate. It doesn't say the law and the prophets, but separately the law, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and the prophets, separately and together, he didn't I come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, as he said that to the disciples, while in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't give us the earlier of his miracles, John does. And in John chapter 2, the disciples have already seen and been with Jesus at a wedding where they ran out of wine. <laughs> I still am looking forward to drinking the wine that Jesus made in heaven because that's going to be better than anything we do, right, Kelly? Um, but ran out of wine, six earthen jars. He said, turn the water into wine. They turned it into wine, and then the criticism came back to the groom's father. Why'd you save the best to last? But he'd seen... The disciples had seen what it meant for Jesus to turn miracles, for, for to fill up the circumstances that they're in. And so Jesus here says, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, and in the Hebrew, the smallest letter looked like a straight line in your text. In the block of the Hebrew text, the letter, the smallest the smallest letter, an L, lambda, is a straight line. Got something out of two years of Hebrew. <laughs> Not the least stroke of a pen. And that's the, in some of your texts, the tittle. All the vowel pointing for Hebrew language is under the consonants. And the little apostrophe under is an I. And so Jesus said, not, unless the, not until the smallest of the letters, the smallest of the marks 
of heaven and earth pass away will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He couldn't have been more specific that he is there as the climax of everything they knew that was Jewish. So what's the problem? The challenge was twofold. Not only that they didn't understand and fully expect what the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the Messiah was, and we'll take the book of Matthew to go through that, but they also had adversaries. They had the religious leaders who had puffed themselves up and put on fancy clothes and sat in the seat of Moses and said, you need to obey us. And they were charlatans. They were hypocrites. So that even as Jesus went through life, his ministry with the disciples, and they did something simple like on the Sabbath, ate grain because they were hungry. Oh, no, that was violating the law. Let's look at that up close and personal. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He entered the house of God in the time of Ahimelech, the priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, but only for the priests. You would compare yourself to David. It was an emergency. Or have you not read in the law how on Shabbat the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath but are guiltless? That's for Levites. Are you a Levite of priestly lineage? Listen carefully. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Son of Man. Let's go. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that shivered their timbers, something big. Because he was saying, I'm greater and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, that event happened later on for Jesus in his ministry with his disciples. But by way of introduction, what you've seen in those religious leaders identify that in order for us to live successfully in life, we need to not only understand what it takes to be happy in the Lord, but also what it takes to identify truth and error, hypocrisy and truth so we have in these leaders and i've given you a summary of matthew 23 that you should have walked in with of what's called the seven woes you know we're moving fast today with a lot of material so hang in there with me matthew 23 on a human level jesus had had it <laughs> he'd had it he was close to the last week of his life he put up with the trickery and deception of the religious leaders and at one point they came to him in Matthew 22 and said we got him now let's ask him what the greatest commandment is we got him because there are 513 
commands in the Old Testament, of which there's the great Ten Commandments, he can't give us a right answer. And, of course, Jesus' answer was, remember, this is the full and greatest commandment, first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And in that is all of the law and the prophets. And they slunk away because he nailed it. That is the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the kingdom of God. But Jesus wasn't through with them. So in Matthew 23, he said, Beware of those who sit in the seat of Moses and who tell you to obey them when they don't do what they tell you. And he said about them, They are ones who shut the kingdom of God to you. They are outside the kingdom. They are great persuaders and not sure of the truth themselves. They are ones who distort the truth of God and are blind guides. He says that twice in this section. They are ones who neglect the greater requirements of the law by the small details of the law. Here's an example. I can't get distracted like this. I won't get done. In order to be divorced in the first century, you didn't need an attorney. You didn't need anything more than the rabbi said. The man goes up to the woman and says, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Boom, she's gone. No spousal support, nothing. Um, they focus on the little or the errors to the absence of the truth. They, Jesus said, they're whitewashed tombs, which is pretty picturesque. The leaders are full of hypocrisy and, and, and wickedness. And finally, they are not like, just like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but lacking the trappings of authority. They fill up the measure of the sins of their forefathers. So what you see on the screen are religious hypocrites. Now they were dressed up in fancy clothes, they had fancy titles, but they were charlatans and they were leading the people astray and Jesus said we've got to address that if you're going to understand what it takes to please God in the kingdom. Okay, we can take that off and let's go now to Matthew 5.20. Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That must have struck them like a two before upside the head. Because they knew nothing but relying on their religious leaders to interpret for them what was pleasing to God. And Jesus said, you're leaning your ladder up against the wrong building if you follow these guys because you need a righteousness that surpasses even them. Now, as I said, there were 513 commands in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There were about 12, Pharise there were 12 prophets that came after them. And in all of that, they misdirected the people. So part of becoming a strong, growing Christian is having the discernment to identify truth from error. That's why I keep pushing the study Bible. 
to help you on this. My study notes for this section today are really great. I won't read them for you because I don't have time, but uh, that's the sort of thing that will help. But in that, you've got to surpass the righteousness of the scribes. Jesus had prefaced that comment with Matthew 5, 19. And in chapter 5 and verse 19, the text says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God, certainly applied to the religious hypocrites. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. There's our theme for the day. Greatness in the kingdom. One that's successful. One that brings delight to the minds and heart of God. And it comes by redirecting our attention to the teachings of Jesus instead of the instructions of the religious leaders. So where does that leave us? We are a people. I'll be careful here because it's going to sound more like a classroom and I want to move quickly. We are a people who... In Adam and in Eve, everyone on this planet is fallen. We have been marked out as fallen in nature because of our forefathers and foremothers. And as such, we have come short of the kinds of requirements that a holy God has to be in relationship with him. But the good news is, that as was said in passages like Romans 6, Jesus brought the Old Testament, excuse me, God brought the Old Testament not just to give us a listing of rules, but to show us in flesh and blood what the kingdom of God was like. So from Abraham to Moses to Israel to the prophets, we saw a life and blood unwinding of why God gave us the Old Testament. Because brace yourself, Christianity is Jewish. And until we get an understanding of our background in the Old Testament, we don't have a full appreciation of the New Testament. By the way, in Matthew, remember, we're still in the Old Testament. We're not, we're not to the cross yet. But in Romans 6 it says, Paul wrote, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point? The Old Testament was like a search beam on the lives of individuals to say, whatever I am, whatever I do, it falls short of the full requirement of the holiness of God. So sacrifices and other things kind of showed an allegiance to the word of God, but it did not bring by itself redemption. It showed the need. If we were to take the time, which we won't, to go one chapter further in Romans 7, we would see that Paul wrote, the law came and it said in part, do not covet. Except for the law, I wouldn't know that I shouldn't covet, but it exposed the sin in me and caused me to realize my need for a savior. So what the Old Testament do, what did was provide a blueprint and a spotlight that moved us to the life of Jesus. It's a subject for another time to talk about how salvation happened in the Old Testament before Jesus came, 
we'll deal with that another time. But in Romans 7, the law exposed those of us who said, boy, I'd sure like that boat of that car that's in my neighbor's driveway. I'd really like that. I'd like to covet that. I'm not quite happy with what I have. It showed that our, our being is still fallen. We still have a nature that's marked out by Adam. If we were to take the time to go to Galatians 5, which we won't, New Testament, regenerate, converted Christians in the first century were still confused about the law. And you say, they are, I am, I'm trying to help you on that. Um, so what they would do is, even adult men who converted to the church were taught, you need to circumcise yourself. Now that's a little weird to talk about with men, and a little awkward, and I imagine quite painful. But they thought it was a sort of thing to that had to happen to please God, to get on the right place with God. And so in Galatians 5, Paul wrote and says, no, you don't need to be circumcised. In Acts 15, the apostle Peter and the Jerusalem council, and Steve will be there shortly through the book of Acts, said, we know that it's being taught that we need to be circumcised in order to be part of the kingdom of God. That is not true and stood in the breach and stopped the emphasis that Old Testament patterns were needed for New Testament regeneration. If we were to study this theologically, hold on for a minute, it's called imputation, a word you may not have ever heard before, but let's just call it transfers. There are three great transfers in the Bible. The first imputation or transfer was when the sins of Adam and Eve were passed on through their parents and our parents to every human being. And that is still marked out in us. Everybody in this place has a fallen nature, a sinful nature, one that drives us to do what we don't want to do and to not do what we know we should do, Romans 7 and 8. But the good news is there's a second transfer. <laughs> and the second transfer is when we transfer our condemnation and sin as being short of the holiness of God to Jesus himself. And that second transfer, that second imputation, is seen in a place like 1 Peter chapter 2, which I'll read to you. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the second great transfer in the Bible wasn't just that we're marked out as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, but now we're regenerated because our sin was carried by Jesus himself on the cross and our sin was imputed to him such that we now are seen by God as righteous and holy in Christ. Praise God for that. There is a third transfer, and that third transfer is taking the righteousness of Christ and transferring it back to us. And so 2 Corinthians says, for example... 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, here it is, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You realize that? Because of the work of the cross, and you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, what God looks at in this assembly is not just us in a fallen state, with whatever struggles and challenges we have, but imprinted across all the believers in this body is the righteousness of God. Amazing. The third transfer is the sin which God, which God through Christ took for us has been given back to us, now in righteous standing before him. Where does that leave us? It leaves us in Matthew 5 and verse 14. I said to you that the preliminary work of the Sermon on the Mount was to teach us happiness and success. Happiness is the joy and blessedness that comes in following the instructions of the Beatitudes. Success is in verse 14. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let that phrase kind of bury itself in your soul. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How do we please God? There are all kinds of fancy studies and theological agendas and seminary events called apologetics and hermeneutics, apologetics, defending the faith, hermeneutics, how to interpret the scriptures. I'm going to say this carefully. You don't need that. In order to please God, there it is. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. One of the early experiences I had in my education was in working in a graduate course on suicidology. And as part of that class, I think it probably would violate current HIPAA standards, but in that day, uh, we went in to the local hospital and behind two-way glass was able to watch psychiatrists interview and work with their patients. And to my great surprise as a young man, I saw that some of the leaders in our city and our community <coughs> were in trouble. People that in the newspapers we thought were the heroes and shakers and movers of the community who had the position and the power and the influence and the financial wealth were coming to their psychiatrists and saying, I, I'm at the end of my rope happy, I'm not satisfied, and I don't know why I should go on living. The good answer for us is that God in Christ has made him essentially to follow the planetary illustration. He's made him the sun, the S-U-N, Christ as the sun, and we are the moon. So the light that radiates from Christ, and that's biblical, there are a number of passages in the scripture that talk about Jesus as the light. Ephesians 5, 
He's the Lord. The Lord is the the Lord is the life of the wor world. Uh, John eight twelve. He's the light of the world. Jesus, as the sun, radiates to us as the moon, and his light reflects off of us. And here's the astounding message within the message. God has seen fit to have you and I be co-laborers with him in the work of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? He hasn't said, just stand aside, John. You've already shown you kind of fits and starts here. I'm going to do it without you. Just the opposite. He says in Matthew 5 and 14, it is, we are to be ones who are the light of the world. And by giving light to everyone, they see our good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So in the circumstance of your life, it may be in a living situation where you have limited contact with people for health reasons. It may be family. It may be work environment. It may be strangers. <laughs> I was humorously uh, criticized at the club last week because as I was introduced, uh, introducing some of the, I've been there, I don't know, long enough that whatever, and it, it's, um, I was introducing some people to each other. They said, well, John's kind of the social director of the club. And I thought to myself, that's kind of odd. And then I thought, wait a minute. Why, why shouldn't we be people who go out and reach out and build bridges with people in a way that shows the life of Christ in us? And um, so we are the reflectors. If Jesus is the one who gives light to us, we are the one who dispense it out, and we've been given the high privilege within our families, within our communities, within our world to reflect something of Jesus. Someone has said, and with this I'll close, and when an attorney says that, don't believe it, but um, um, someone has said 10% of life, 10% of success in life is, is what happens to you, and 90% is what, hap what you do with it. And that's true. That's true. Really, the core issue is that we are driven with joy as people who have been redeemed. We have been given the grace and life of Christ and the opportunity to be something of that light to those around us. No wonder Jesus starts this first and great sermon with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as I read this, think through in your life where you can apply this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. I've got a sister who is probably in her last week or two of life. And so as I visit her, and I pray with her, and try to encourage the family, now there's a lot of mourning that goes on and we rely on the comfort of God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be feel, filled. Blessed are the merciful, and everybody can be merciful. You can be merciful in simply assisting those around you. It may be just a brief moment of care, of picking up something for them, of paying for something that they are 
struggling they can't pay for another day. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Be a peacemaker with those around you. Be one who doesn't take advantage of leveraging people and jamming them into a corner or in a separation and conflict that they've gotten themselves into. Try to find and pray for that middle ground that says, how can we bring these people together in a way that's honorable to God? Those are the good deeds. Enough said. Those are the good deeds that become the light that is Christ shining through us to those around us. May God give us mercy and blessings and success as we follow these words. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you have placed us today in this place and with this word in a way that shows us direction in life. We're thankful that we can cut through the chaff and the errors and falsities of those around us and rely on your word and the work of your spirit to do the things that's honorable and brings glory to him who is our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.